The Broken Meeple, Season 3, Episode 2, recorded on 2nd of March 2019. Broken Meeple Podcast, a show devoted to board games, card games, and the people who play them. Sit back and enjoy, and remember, it's only a game. Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in, and sorry it's been a while since the last one. Yes, I know, broken record. It's just trying to get these out on top of the YouTube channel. But, as you can see, the YouTube channel has at least got off to high speed. Top 10s, reviews, the anthology reviews, even a solo play or two, both on app and tabletop form, have managed to release on the channel. So, cheers for putting up with me to actually get this up and running. But now, things seem to be running pretty smoothly. I'm just trying to not get into that same trap as I did last year, where I get too many games, or have to put out too much content at once because that just ends up hitting burnout. But of course I want to keep the podcast going while I'm at it. So what's the big highlight? Uh, well, mainly, Aircon is next week. Yes, Aircon is a convention run by a friend of mine called Mark Cook up in Harrogate, up in Yorkshire. And, well, even if you don't go to the convention, Harrogate is just a nice place to visit in general. It's certainly very scenic when the sun's out. But the convention itself is one of those typical, you know, gathering of friends type conventions. You get a few retailers, you get a bring and buy, you get a library and a, a few sort of demonstrators. But other than that, it's mostly an affair where you just come and play games. A bit like HandyCon that I was talking about back in January. And... It's a solid convention all round. I mean, I have been there since Aircon 2. I think this is the 5th, 6th iteration now? I think it's Aircon... I forget which one. Uh, I got a feeling it's Aircon... Five? I don't know. It doesn't matter. I, I was there when I think they were in a place called Bradford, you know, this tiny little convention. I thought, oh, well, this is nice. It's quaint, but, you know, probably isn't going to do too much. Then all of a sudden it's like, oh, we're in this place. Okay, this is a lot more space, but okay, go with it. And now it's like, oh, even more space and still growing. Okay, fair enough. Prove me wrong. So it's good to have that convention. It is a bit of a drive. I mean, this is a five-hour drive for me. It's certainly uh, not the shortest trip that it's going to be. But, you know, it's worth the five-hour drive because I basically just drive up, go to bed, and then get three days of gaming with people who I know on Facebook and Twitter. And a lot of them go to this convention. So this is easily one of the best conventions I know to meet people in the industry that I get on well with. You know, HandyCon is pretty good as well, but not as many people I know go to that one. And the expo is quite a large convention, so you don't always bump into those people. Whereas this place has a fair amount of space, but it's one big open plan space. And it's like rows of tables and a couple of other little areas. So unless you are pretty much wandering around Harrogate or like stuck in the retailer section, chances are it's not too difficult to find someone. If someone says, oh, we're at the far end on X table next to whatever, you know where they are. It's easy to spot them. And that's a cool thing, because it means I can actually get to meet some of you again. But, yep, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I'll soon pack the bags for that, I think. I've already sorted my bring and buy stuff. I might have to add one or two items to the list, but I'll be bringing up a few things to, uh, you know, sell off cheaply. And also, I'll be just there to play some games. I'll bring a few up that I think are good. But other than that, I'll just look to see what everyone else is playing and just play some games. I'm not too fussed. I'm not trying to teach specific games here, like the new hotness or anything. I'm just like, 
want to play some games. And I've already been roped into a few demos with um, David Turksy and I think Danielle Tassini or something. I don't know, the designers for uh, Teotihuacan, City of Gods. There's an expansion to that game I'll be testing out. I'll be testing out um, the expansion to Anachrony. And I think I'll be joining in one other game that David has made. I forget its title, but I just thought, you know what, I want to sign up to a few of these because they're usually, well, the expansions to two great games and another game that will be something different. Why not? Other than that, I'm teaching Cerebria to the Game Shelf Girls, you know, that'll be good fun. And hopefully in return they'll teach me the quacks of Quedlinburg because I'm starting to get a little bit sick and tired of seeing photo after photo after photo of this game online. So it's like, as much as I don't really like anything that this designer has put out, especially not the mind, mind, uh, then every designer that I don't like can still put out one game that I can respect or like, and I'm hoping that Quacks will be it. It certainly does look like the most promising one that will, will, will sing to me, but yeah, not the biggest fan of his other stuff. So I will be there the whole three days, can't guarantee I'll be wearing a Broken Makeup t-shirt or anything, but uh, I'll be there, I'll be tweeting, so hopefully it'll be easy enough for you to spot me, even if I decide to go casual clothing for this one, because as much as it's easier to be spotted when I've got those t-shirts on, they're not the most comfortable ones in the world, and I'm probably getting a bit big for them. I need to order some new ones, but it's just, it's not easy, cheap, or, you know, pleasurable to sort of order a lot of these t-shirts, because you always get low quality rubbish unless you spend the ends of the earth, and then it's just like... Is it really worth it? But I'll be there, I might have my camera with me, I certainly have my mobile phone, but I might have my DLSLR camera because I might be trying to take some video footage of the convention as well. I might do a, a montage video or something afterwards, you know, give it a shot. Failing that, some B-roll footage for maybe like a post-video discussion or even just to take some pictures and tweet and Facebook them and Instagram. You know, that'll be decent enough. Might even do some live stuff on YouTube because um, I know you can use the YouTube app to do live videos. Uh, I think you just literally tap, tap a button and you get like about, what, like a minute of live footage. So maybe I'll do that. I need to test that. I need to test that little microphone with my mobile phone and maybe I'll try that actually. That'd be something else to do today, because I'm kind of getting bored sitting around the house not doing a lot. But, yeah, like I say, I'll be there. Hope to see you guys there as well. Aircon's usually a great fun blast to do. And even when I feel like I need a break from gaming, Harrogate itself is nice. I love the tea house there. It's expensive as all get out, but it's a very tasty afternoon tea and scones and everything. Uh, there's, you know, some decent restaurants there. There's scenic parks to walk around. It's just generally a very pleasant location. And you can get accommodation pretty easily, particularly if you travel on your own, in umpteen amount of different guest houses, bed and breakfasts and hotels, all within walking distance. I mean, I'm literally, I think, two minutes away. By foot, I'm literally just up the road. I mean, you can go in the Holiday Inn, uh, Holiday Inn or Crown Plaza, I don't know, I forget the brand. Might be Premier Inn, I don't know. But they're right next door to the International Harrogate Centre, which is where it is. And, well, you ain't paying those prices. No, thank you. They do try to rip you off there. So you literally just go, all right, I'll go an extra 50 yards up the road to this guest house. It's still four star. Yeah, it's not the Ritz. But frankly, when I go to these conventions, I'm not that fussed about the accommodation because at the end of the day, I'm there to play games. I'm not there to sleep. <laughs> the accommodation is there to literally go home to and sleep and then get up in the morning and have a shower and breakfast in. That's pretty much the sole purpose of these things. So I never like to go too lavish on accommodation. 
So that's all cool. I hope to see you there. So what else do I want to talk about this episode? Well, I want to start actually talking about games I've played because most other podcasts do and I realised I don't tend to do that as much. So yeah, starting from now, we'll at least have some games that I've been playing, maybe ones I'm going to review, maybe ones I'm not, or maybe something new that I've not played before. So I'll talk about a few of those in a minute. Other than that, I also want to talk about a one more game segment. Uh, you know, choosing a game of mine that uh, has it stood the test of time? Well, we'll see. We shall see. And then I just want to have a quick rant about the way some people seem to have a go at you for distinguishing theme in games. You know, this is like a mini rant. It's not a full-on discussion, but we'll see how that goes. So let's start with some actual games. Okay, first up is Sentient. Sentient is a puzzle dice game that uh, Renegade Game Studios put out a while back, known for being one of the most overpriced games that they've ever done. This is like a, what, 40-something pound game, and it's basically a bunch of cards, some dice, and some artwork that's pasted on anyway. It's like, really? The price for this game is ridiculously expensive for what you get, and it's not exactly the Ritz in terms of components either. But what it boils down to is a multiplayer puzzle game. You have these dice on a little board in front of you and you roll them at the start of each round. And what you'll do is that you'll put these, I don't know, workers, mechanics, I forget what they're even supposed to be now, out in this row of cards. And you're trying to get cards that basically up and they sort of up and down the various values of the dice that you have in front of you, but they also score you points at the end of the round based on you know whether you meet the condition. So does the left die, is the left die greater than the right die? Good, five points. Are both of them threes? Right, seven points, you know, kind of things like that. But you're trying to put the cards in front of you in such a way that the conditions are still met so you'll score highly, but then you're also trying to put workers out in this row where the cards are in order to get majority so that you can get the card, like these tokens that score you more for particular types of cards at the end. I don't know. It's, I mean, it's supposed to be a sci-fi, like, robot-making theme. It is completely pasted on. There is no theme in this game whatsoever. It is purely a puzzle game. And granted, that's the first problem with it, the fact that it really does have no theme. But... It's okay. I mean, for the price you're paying for this game, Sentient is really nothing to shout out, shout home about. The puzzle is okay, but the biggest issue is that a lot of it feels... It does feel quite punishing with the whole majority thing, because you might be going after a card, and you might put a few people there, and then suddenly somebody comes along and just tries to completely, like, overthrow you. Rather than going against somebody else who's clearly either in the lead or has barely, like, one worker on front of these people, you sort of put all your eggs in one basket and then somebody just comes along and goes one higher than your basket and you get nothing. That's just a bit punishing. On top of that, the game is very luck-driven because you effectively have to choose from the tableau of cards. If the cards don't work for what dice you've got, you're hosed. You really don't have a way to get around it. You have one chance, I think, to pass and then refresh all the cards, but then all you're doing is refreshing it for the other players, and it also puts you in a turn order sequence, which means that you will lose tiebreakers, which is highly problematic. So you just feel like you're kind of at the mercy of the cards, really. I didn't feel like I had a lot of control in this game. You know, I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to aim for these tokens, but then somebody might just beat you out of them in one or two rounds and it's only a four round game it drags on a bit the downtime can be high because people are trying to think 
you know, you can't strategize in this game, so you have to react to what cards come out, and it just really didn't sing well with me. It's all right. I don't hate it, but at most I'd give this about a five. It's mediocre at best. I just wasn't really enjoying it. I thought I was expecting better, but especially as Z Garcia sort of sings the praises of this game, but I just thought it was average at best. That's Sentient from Renegade Game Studios. Next up is Res Arcana. This is one that I'll be doing a review on soon, but I don't know if it's going to be a detail one or an anthology one, because I've got quite a few games to put in an anthology at some point soon. But Res Arcana is from Tom Lehman, and most people know him from the works of Race for the Galaxy, so they think, ooh, a weird card engine building game from Tom Lehman? It's gotta be good, it's gotta be good. It generally is good. I don't think it's mind-blowing. But it's certainly got some interesting twists. First up, it's generic fantasy. I mean, the theme is relatively pasted. You don't really feel like you're doing much in it. It's an engine building card game. It's full of iconography, like crazy. I mean, it's, it's not as bad as Race for the Galaxy in terms of a learning curve, but yeah, you got a lot of icons to sift through and that can make learning your first game a bit on the slow side. But the rule book is actually laid out pretty well, I have to admit. It didn't take too long to learn it from a solo playthrough. But what you're effectively doing is you're trying to get to 10 victory points. And the idea is that you have a card, a, sorry, a deck of eight cards. Just eight cards, nothing else. They are shuffled randomly from this deck of artifact cards and that is your deck for the whole game. So everybody has a unique deck. And you basically take turns to play actions, which is usually to play cards, to collect essences, which is the resource cost to play those cards, do various shenanigans for victory points, and basically you are trying to build up some kind of card engine with only these eight cards and whatever else you happen to buy during the game, which are these monuments or places of power, which allow you to get more victory points. It's essentially as simple as that, but of course you do have that um, accessibility issue of all the iconography that you got to teach people. It's fine. But there's a couple of caveats. Firstly, don't play this with four players. It's too much downtime, the game takes a little bit too long with four players. It's definitely very good at a two player and works alright with a three player. But four player, bit too much. And not that necessary either, because aside from someone taking a place of power or monument that you were hoping for, there's not a huge amount of like meaningful interaction in this game. You can make some people lose a bit of life and stuff like that, but it's pretty minor interaction here. Secondly, you need to draft. If you play this game either... I mean, I recommend you play your first game with the preset hands it recommends, because then at least you can get used to the game. After that, you chuck away those rules, and you chuck away all mention of shuffling those eight cards, and you draft them as in the variant rules. Because if you do not draft, this game basically can be won or lost and decided before you even start the first term. Because you might have a deck that will just work well, and you might have a deck that is just a bunch of random cards that you can barely use. You have to to draft these cards because otherwise it's just basically a luck fest and just doesn't work that well at all. My first game of this I was like, this is alright but I don't like the idea that this was a random deck, let's just go with it. Let's try drafting now. It then rose up a bit, it's like, oh, if we draft this is a bit more interesting, I get to choose what goes in my deck. But then you also might get slightly hosed at the start when you can't draft exactly the cards you want. But it's not the end of the world. I mean, everybody's in that situation and drafting makes a lot of things more fun anyway. So 
it's generally alright. I need to play it some more, it will get a review, but so far I'm liking it. It's different, you know, I like the idea that you've got a random, unique 8-card deck every game, that's pretty sweet. The whole places of power and monument scene are pretty basic abilities, it is just an engine building game, the fact that it's got like a mage uh, kind of theme on it is kind of light, it's fairly pasted, but then I didn't really feel like I was exploring space with Race of the Galaxy either, so it's it's fine. I'm going to keep trying it, it's a good production, I mean the essences come in a game tray style box, you know, not official game tray, but that kind of thing, like a plastic container to hold them all in and it works fine, it stores away nicely, it's not even that big a box. So all in all, fine so far, but we'll get onto a review soon, maybe next week. Next up, I have been playing a little bit of Stone Age, the Anniversary Edition, and Stone Age is fine. I don't love it to bits. It's a decent entry-level worker placement game. For what it sets out to do, it does it brilliantly. The river, I would say, is a bit more entertaining and a bit more easier to get into, but Stone Age is a good alternative. It's been around for a while, and you know, you're basically just a bunch of cavemen, and you're getting resources, you're burning buildings, which is just literally like cashing these resources and get some victory points, and you can get these civilization cards, which get you some bonuses, but also collect you like set collection at the end of the game for more points. It's pretty generic, and you're scoring points left and right. You could almost coin it a point salad because of the amount of points you end up with in this game. It's kind of ridiculous. But the thing that puts people off with this game is the whole that you roll dice, with your workers to get resources and if the dice don't go well for you, even with the mitigation that's in the game, there's only so much of it, you can basically be host. And it's my issue with the game as well, which is why this isn't likely a game I'll keep, but I'll probably donate it to the local Portsmouth Cafe because they don't have a copy of Stone Age. So unless they get a copy of this winter version, they could probably do with a copy of it. So I might give it to them. But you know, and it's not the cheapest game to give to them, and I must admit, here's the biggest problem with it. Because, A, it's not cheap. This is more expensive by far than the original version when it came out. So you think, well, it's an anniversary edition, and prices have gone up since. Yes, prices have gone up since. Yes, it is an anniversary edition, but... Shall I list to you all the changes that are in this anniversary edition, right? These are all the changes between the original and this one. There is a double-sided board in which one side is identical to the original, and now you have a winter side of the board, so just winter artwork. Okay? The only rule difference between the winter and the summer board is that with the buildings and the civ cards, you can pay an additional resource of a certain type and get some bonus points. That's literally it with the winter board. Okay? Now, if you do play the winter board, you have a couple of mini-expansions you can throw in. You have igloos, which are literally four buildings. That's it. It's just the fact that they're at the start of the game, they're laid out so anybody can buy them from the word go and they're in every game. That's literally it. They are just generic point buildings, nothing more. Okay, and then the third change. You have Wild Animals as a mini expansion. This is sieve cards that shuffled into the deck. When they come out, they go to the side of the board and they make nerfs to your various die rolls. This applies to everybody, so if people put their workers on the cards as a collective, you can drive them away and put things back to normal. And those who contribute get a bonus at the end, but the bonus is done by a D6 die roll. And believe me, it is considerably better to get a spare worker from a bonus like that than it is to get free food. So it's a little bit on the swinny side. 
and the workers are slightly bigger, I think, and they've got weird, it's kind of like the, it's kind of what, uh, meeples, is it meeple sauce? I don't know, the, what they do where they draw like with black lines and black pen, they draw like the faces and that on the meeples, it's not my favourite way to have a custom meeple, but basically they're slightly better meeples. Other than that, that's it. You still have the leather cup, the same dice, the same building tiles, the same look, the same rules. That's literally all that is in this anniversary reprint. And I swear it's like 15, 20 pounds more than the original. But basically, you are getting... I mean, I can't even call the igloos a mini expansion. It's four buildings. You could leave them out of the game and nothing would change. The wild animals is probably the best aspect here. And even then, it's a minor change. It's four cards. So you are basically getting winter artwork, four buildings, and four cards extra for an extra, what, 15 to 20 pound over the original. This is not how you do an anniversary reprint, okay? Even without caring if you like the game or not, this is just low effort and bad for an anniversary reprint. I can look behind me right now and see two anniversary editions, oh no, sorry, actually, was that an anniversary? No, it was a deluxe version, okay, but I know they've done it. I can see Ticket to Ride, okay? Ticket to Ride, the 10th anniversary on my shelf. That was an awesome anniversary edition. It was the USA rules, it brought in like massive component upgrade, it gave you a jumbo size board, it threw in the expansion as well. Yes, it didn't add any mini expansions now, but as an anniversary edition, it was like, yeah, this was good production. I mean, this was awesome. And then the one that I mistook nearly for was Takedo. I have the deluxe version, but I do like the anniversary edition. They didn't change a great deal in there, but they did revise the artwork and that, and they didn't charge the ends of the wear for it. So, again, not as much in that one, but they at least gave it a revamp and they didn't try to overcharge you for it. It was basically just a reprint with new artwork. This is a bad way to do an anniversary reprint, guys. I mean, it's just like such minor changes that aren't even that great, and you basically just got winter artwork. That's it. I don't care if it has winter artwork. You could have literally thrown in the expansions. You could have just said, right, here's some extra buildings and here's wild animals and instead of a polar bear, it's a brown bear. And you could have kept the summer artwork. Did it really cost that much to get winter artwork? This looks like the artwork was already done at the time the original Stone Age was done. They just didn't use the winter artwork and they just pulled out the digital cappy and used it in the game. It's, ah, oh, I don't know, I'm ranting enough. Save it for an anthology review where I'm sure it will feature soon. But yeah, all I'm saying is, guys, if you're worried about missing out on the Stone Age reprint, buy it only if you want to play Stone Age and you don't already own it. If you already own Stone Age, avoid this like the plague. It is not worth the extra money. So, one more game. That's a segment that I've had for a while and I haven't brought it back for a fair while, so it's about time I did. This is a segment, for those of you that are new or have not heard of it before, where I talk about a game that I've owned for at least a year, preferably longer if I can help it, and I say whether it still stands the test of time. After many plays, after much light hanging on the shelf, is it a game that I still want to play after all that time, or is it a game where I'm like, 
hmm, I'm kind of done with it now, I can get rid of it. And why is that? Is it a problem with the replayability? Is it because I'm getting sick and tired of particular mechanics? Is it because something's come by to replace it? That's what this segment's about. And today, as I look at my pile of uh, bring and buy games and stuff like that, I'm going to talk about Ex Libri. Ex Libri. Ex Libri is a Renegade Game Studios game, and I feel bad because I feel like I'm ragging on them this episode, but uh, that was more for sentient. I do like a lot of Renegade Game Studios stuff. I mean, they. I mean, I've got Raycolt on my shelf, that's really good. They teamed up with Foxtrot Games for Spy Club, I think that's really cool. Check out my anthology review on that. You know, generally, Renegade Game Studios puts out stuff like. Oh, yeah, and Arc. Actually, no, that was Garpill Games and Renegade Game Studios brought it over. Hmm. Maybe their original stuff is not fantastic. I don't know. Like I say, I like Renegade Game Studios just fine. <laughs> yeah, whether they're porting games or they're doing their own thing, they're generally pretty good. But Ex Libri is a game that I really enjoyed when I first played it. I mean, I've had this for about a year and a half. Probably a year and a half to two years now. And it's a fantastical game where you are building an arcane library. You're basically building up a library made of all these cards with all these books of different types on there. And the idea is, is that you need to not only have them in alphabetical order, but you need to collect, you need to have like a proper functioning shelf, you need to have lots of the revered books, you need to have less of the banned books. And effectively, you are doing worker placement with your little apprentices on various locations that chop and change every round in order to collect the cards and build up your library. And then at the end of the game, you'll score based on a few criteria, winner with the one with the most victory points. This is a gorgeous looking game. I mean, the color and the artwork is great. The theme is kind of there. You know, I mean, it, it works. The setting is nice. And you've got a lot of different characters you can play each with their own special meeple. That's like, you know, anything from a, a weird Sasquatch meeple to a big gelatinous cube. You know, there's all sorts of weird stuff here. You've got a dry erase scoreboard, which I love. I love dry erase scoreboards, except for when the pen's not very good and it runs out, then you've got problems. It's kind of done like a clipboard, like a flip chart, like someone's marking and assessing you. I mean, the theme is pretty strong here. But here's an issue I've had with the game since I got it. I mean, I rated it a 9 when I first got it, and I still think it's a fun game. That rating probably has dropped a bit to probably a 7 now. And that still means I like the game. I still think it's good, but it's not one I feel like I'm going to keep. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would like to play this more, but here's the big problem. The locations that come out, they chop and change every round, and they get progressively more and more as they come out. There are some easy ones, there are some more complicated ones. When you play this with a solo game, it's not too bad. When you play this two-player, it's pretty easy to track. When you play this with three, it's getting there, and if you play this with four, I really do not advise this with four. You know, broken record, three is a sweet spot, but... You have too much text on these locations. I had to print out reference guides in order to make it easier for people to read these locations. And even then, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of upkeep on them. You know, you've got to put cards on some, you've got to take them off others, you've got to put them face up, face down, you've got to swap them around. You've got weird rules about putting a worker out in a location and then taking it off your board. And then you've got your home boards as well. There's a lot of text going around these locations. And frequently, I play this game and I'm constantly having to teach a bunch of locations every round because it's usually different people playing it. And that started to grate. It was okay for a little while. I accepted it as, okay, it's got a bit of a learning curve, but it's still a fun game. And I still think it's a fun game. But that, that issue has gotten 
bigger and bigger ever since because it's putting me off wanting to bring it to club nights. Takes up a fair bit of table space because you've got all the locations. Even though they look cool, the cards are great, but again, takes up table space to have your libraries everywhere. But it's just knowing that I've got to teach all these locations again and again and again. And if you play with AP players or those who don't get games by text and that, it's frustrating and slightly annoying. You know, it, it just got to a point where I was getting a little bit sick of it. And it's probably the only main flaw I have with the game. The only other little flaw I have is that the player abilities aren't balanced. You've got a bunch of these different meeple home boards that you can pick from. And each one has a special ability with their meeple. There are some that are miles clearly better than some others. So you could argue you could give the new player some of those. But again, they should have been balanced and these ones just so aren't. So not like stupidly overpowering, but blatantly like, I mean, the bookworm, for example, allows you so much flexibility compared to something like the Sasquatch. It's and the snowman, for example, it's like there's only so much you can do with some of these characters. And it just ruins a little bit of the variety when you know that there are certain abilities where it's like, oh, I've got to pick from one of these two. They're not very good, you know. And, you know, you can draft them, I guess, but even so. So, Ex Libri, it's still gorgeous to look at. It's still a fun theme. It's still a fun game. I like the building of the library, trying to get everything in order. All the books have got funny titles on them for a bit of a laugh. You know, it's, it's a good game but that whole teaching of the locations every single time the wad of text that even i'll forget on some of these locations i don't know them well enough to go through it having to swap around reference guides for it it just it's gotten to that point where it's like i like it but i just don't think i can keep it so one more game i'd like a game but somebody else can own it now And finally, before I wrap up this episode, I just want to talk a little bit about theme. Because I find that some people are really using theme in the wrong context here when they're arguing on Facebook or other manners than that. And there was a couple of conversations up lately where people were doing polls on which would you prefer to play, a thematic game or a Euro game, you know, or something like that. And it's like, well, you can have thematic Euro games. And, you know, they're not exactly mutually exclusive. And then you've got some people who will say, oh, this has got a load of theme in it. And it's like, where? You know, where does that have theme? Where does Concordia have theme? You know, there's sort of weird arguments that get, like, measured up. But then what really gets on my go is when you get the people who, just because they don't like theme in the game, consider it not important for everybody else. Like, you can't rate a game badly because the theme doesn't work. I'm not saying that you can rate a game badly just because of the theme, but if the theme is supposed to be there and it doesn't work, or the theme is not interesting to appeal to normal gamers, then it's a bad negative point. I mean, if you're going to pick a theme to run with, what would you rather play as a, you know, Euro theme? Would you rather play a game where you are making wine out of grapes and selling it and uh, running a little uh, vineyard? Or would you rather play a Euro game where you are building industries and coal mines for money in the Industrial Revolution? Or would you rather a Euro game where you are pleasing nobles and queens and kings by building buildings? Or would you like a Euro game where you basically just 
to collect tokens and occasionally one of them has a picture of a llama on it. You know, it's like, you've got to admit, some of those sound a lot better than others, don't they? <laughs> yeah, they're going to be more appealing. And certainly the thematic games are definitely more appealing to me, but they're also appealing to a lot of people. But just because you don't like theme in a game and you only care about the mechanics, all well and good, that's fine. But don't suddenly disregard the fact that theme bad theme or lack of theme is a negative in games just because you don't care about the theme. At least it means that you can watch a review and if they say, oh, I don't like the theme, you can gloss over that point because it doesn't affect you. But it's not invalidated as a point. It's still valid. Unless the game is an abstract game, there will still be a setting, there will still be a theme. And you can tell when it's been recycled, where it doesn't work, where it's been pasted. I mean, Great Western Trails are a great example here. I mean, with that one, you know, they, he tried to put in a theme there saying you're in the Wild West and you're wrestling cattle and you're, you know, got your trade markets and you're selling them and you're building all these buildings and doing Wild Westy stuff like killing Indians and that. And it's just like, actually, that sounds pretty harsh, but <laughs> uh, repelling. I think repelling the uh, Native Indians is probably a better phrase. But let's face it. Is there a lot of theme in Great Western Trail despite that? You're doing this merry-go-round around the trail that sort of teleports you back to the start at random points. Yes, you're pushing a train, but it's basically an L-shaped train, and it doesn't really do much on the track itself. You're then, yeah, you're rustling up cows, and you're selling them at the festival. Why are you deck-building the cows? I mean, this is the one mechanic in the game which I just do not get. Why is deck-building thrown here? Because he just wanted to have more mechanics for more mechanics' sake. Yet somehow, at the end of a festival, when you are about to sell your prized cows, they're all mysteriously missing because they've all become ninjas and are hiding behind trees at the time you get there and your deck just didn't happen to deal you any. It's like, why was that even thought to be a good idea? I've no idea. But it, it kind of repels against theme. But the argument that I've had a few times where I just don't get... I swear people are trying to stretch out the definition of theme as much as possible to suit their own agendas... And that's where people say, you don't want a theme, you want a simulation. That's kind of the same thing. <laughs> it's like, theme should make you feel like what it is you're doing in the game makes sense. It should make you feel like you could roleplay it. It should make you feel like, you know, you are doing what it says you're doing. Yes, you have to abstract it out a little bit. You know, yes, okay, grapes do not grow quite in that way. Okay, yes, it's a token on a board that represents your wine bottle, not an actual bottle of wine. It doesn't have to be physically present there. But when you play Viticulture, you feel like you are making wine in a vineyard because the theme comes out very strongly. Everything about the game, whether it's the aesthetics or the gameplay itself, you know, whether it's streamlined or not, the rule sets and the fact of what it is you're doing in the game just feels more interesting and thus more thematic. It's not like, oh, I'm simulating that I'm actually a wine merchant. It's the fact that the game about winemaking actually fits the whole thing of winemaking. You know, when you play something like Lorenzo in Magnifico, do you have any idea what you're doing in that game in terms of theme at all it goes on in the start of the rule book about like yeah you are nobles in 17th century who gives a monkeys and stuff like that but do you actually feel like anything you're doing is thematic in that game i mean it's like oh you don't want to knock off the pope what is he there's track okay right and he's literally just a side thing Everything in that game is pasted on like crazy, and it's not even an interesting theme. I mean, even if you're going to have a theme that's not particularly interesting, 
sorry, not, not particularly like strong, at least make it interesting. <laughs> you know, what is it with people picking stuff about 17th century England and doing all nobles and queens and kings and trains and boring? Seriously, anything, just even generic fantasy I'll take over nobles and trains. I can't, uh, trains particularly, I am sick to death of trains. I don't get why people like trains, seriously. This is one of my worst types of themes that you can shove into a game. Trains are not interesting, they are not of any use, they are expensive, they are smelly, they are never on time. I mean, granted, I'm talking from a British perspective, I'm sure in Europe and Japan and all that, you've got much better trains than we have. But for us in the UK, they are just one of the worst inventions we have, and I just do not get them. They are not fun, they are not interesting, and they are responsible for making certain games some of my most hated ones. You know, and even games that I don't hate but are brought down because of it. The game trains. It's basically a clone of Dominion. Okay, I like Dominion. I like deck building. Okay, good start. Then you have to connect these routes on this rubbish looking hex map with a cube to represent your station. It's like, oh my god, you just ruined it. And then other train games. It's like, oh, you can play this game about building railroads on this hex map. Yeah. It, uh, what? And then you own the companies and you pay dividends. Look, this is 18xx, it's boring, it's bland, it's stupid, alright? You know, it's uh, not interested in trains. Even rare, was it, Raccoon Tycoon, the one that I put on the anthology review lately. Themes pasted on that one as well, and you're basically just trading in tokens for money and vice versa. But then it's like, oh, now you must buy these railroad cards, which are basically just set collection anyway. But it's like, why is that railroad? Why can't you just build something interesting? <laughs> why can't you have all these different buildings and then you build up a city or something? You know, fine, if you want to put a tile that says train station in there, I don't mind. But I'm just sick to death for trains. But I'm slightly getting off track here. It's, I don't get why theme has to be such, it's, it's a hard thing to describe, I'll admit. You know, it's not the easiest thing to define in a sentence or in words and that, but, you know, for me, theme is about how you feel when you play that game. You know, what does the theme come out and evoke anything in you emotionally or in your mind, whatever. But it's not like one is theme and one is simulation. They're the same thing. You know, if you're playing like a fantasy dungeon crawler, you should be like role-playing your characters. You should be like, yes, there's a big monster there. It's a dragon. It breathes fire. It does all this stuff, right? We should know it does this stuff. It makes sense. You know, it's not like you go, right, I am a, you know, I am a barbarian. I shall now attack you. Allow me to take my deck of cards, shuffle them and draw three and then decide which one of the icons I'd like to play on this card. It's like, no, I'm not trying to play, you know, I want to play a thematic fantasy dungeon crawler, not Gloomhaven. You know, it's, it's that kind of difference. Yeah, so, I, why... It, and like I say, the main people who do this weird counter-argument of theme and simulation and all these different definitions that they've just made up on the spot are usually always... In fact, I would say 100% actually, they are always people who don't like theme anyway. You know, they're the ones who would much rather the game be bone dry and they're happy with it. So, fine. Play Arkwright, play an 18xx game, play Brasp, play Great Western Trail, play Lorenzo and Magnifico, whatever. You know, play these fairly dry games. Terraforming Mars, it's got a theme, I suppose. I suppose that's probably a bit unfair to that one. We'll let that slide. But, you know, play those unformatic games if you want. But that does not mean that theme is not important. It's still important. You just personally don't think it's important. It's still a factor 
in games. Mechanics and theme have to go hand in hand. A mechanic, good mechanics, will make me enjoy a game. A good theme will bring me back for the second round. That's the difference between the two. You can show me a game like, uh, let's see, I mean, excluding, you know, basic games and stuff like that. I'm trying to think. Uh, can I look around? Um, Heaven and Ale is on my shelf. That has got no theme in it whatsoever. It is completely pasted. I like the mechanics in Heaven and Ale. I'm fine with it, but I haven't brought it out for a while because I just know it's a generic Euro game. You know, in the sense that it's just a bunch of mechanics. Same for Coimbra. I got Coimbra on my shelf, and it's just... Every time I think about bringing it out, it's just like... I'm just leveling up tracks and doing card for card. It's The, the theme is not there, so it's not bringing me back for more. But then on the flip side, I'll turn to the other part of the shelf. I'm in the study area, so I don't have my full collection behind me. Scythe. Scythe's got a reasonable good theme to it. You know, the good setting of that, even though it's a little bit pasted on. But Scythe sort of works for me. It's got... And the mechanics of it I love in Scythe, so that kind of wins me over. Try to see what else. Uh, Teotihuacan, not much of a theme in that. Again, the mechanics kind of are good in that. Rising Sun, you know, Carson City, oh, that's a good one. That's a very, that's a pretty thematic Euro game, uh, worker placement. And I feel like I want to play Carson City again because I'm like, well, yeah, it's a Euro game. I'm trying to get the most victory points at the end, but then I'm like, Yep, and I'm building that in the desert, you know, you're, you're getting all these buildings next to each other, you can fight each other on the worker placement spaces, you can get guns and mercenary stuff, and it's like, I don't know, it just sort of appeals to me more. I like theming games. If you don't like theming games, fine, not a problem with that. But don't invalidate theme as a means to reviewing a game or commenting on a game. If someone says that the theme is pasted on in a game and you know it's pasted on, just agree and move on. You don't have to suddenly counteract it by saying, well, you know, you know, you can say this game's really thematic, you know, and give it a high mark, but if you say this game theme's bad on this game, then disregard it. I want to say it's a 10 out of 10 game. It's like, well, no, because it's got a bit that's lacking in it. So, it's, like I say, this could be a subjective viewpoint for everybody who comes up with theme. It's one of the most debated topics in gaming, like, to date. It is quite insane on that matter how hard it is to debate this topic. But all I can say is, I like theme. If you don't, that's fine. But I'm still going to comment on it in reviews. It's still going to be a factor in games. It may not drop the game by loads of marks just because it doesn't have a theme. But I'm going to mention it it's going to happen. So, there. Yeah. And with that, time to wrap up this episode, get it edited and get it online because I'm overdue for a podcast anyway. So, that's it for me. I will see, hopefully, a lot of you at Aircon. I look forward to seeing you there. The rest of you, I hope I'll get to see you at some point, whether it's at a different convention, whether it's at Essen, you know, maybe I'll win the lottery at some point and go to Dice Tower Con. That would be amazing. But uh, I don't think Patreon's going to take me there anytime soon. Put it that way. But like I say, if you like what you hear, subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud. Find me on the YouTube channel. If you really want to help support, donate even just a dollar a month to my Patreon campaign. I'd rather have I'd rather have a thousand people donate a dollar a month than ten people doing ten dollars. You know, it's it's just so much better to have a big lot of people than to just have a few rich people so you know anything is always appreciated but for now i'm gonna head off so that's it for me and remember whether you care about theme or not doesn't matter it's still only a game take care and i'll see you next time <laughs>
Thank you all for listening to my content and I hope it was enjoyable for you. If you want to catch me at other sources, then there's plenty to choose from. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You can find me at all of these places. Just search for The Broken Meeple on Facebook and you will find me. Same for Instagram. On Twitter, you can catch me at The Broken Meeple. On YouTube, just search for The Broken Meeple and you will find my channel full of videos about top 10s, reviews, solo walkthroughs, and all sorts of other things besides. Of course, you can subscribe to this podcast via the RSS feed on soundcloud.com. This is where episodes will be posted in the future as well as audio-only feeds on YouTube. The Broken Meeple is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. As always, remember my motto, it's only a game.